to the best of my recollection, it was a somewhat flattened square plane and basically just a big square object uh, the size of a football field silently floating over the launch pad, red in color, glowing this red color. So as far as I know, it wasn't a cube. It was like a flattened square. Welcome to Merged. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Nuscatelli. Jeff uh, was as surprised as I was when he heard his case, the Vandenberg case, being discussed at the U.S. Congressional hearing on UAP. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Jeff, how do we know each other? How did we initially get in contact with each other? Well, I had been sitting on documentation on a UFO encounter we had at Vandenberg Air Force Base back in 2003. I've been sitting on that paperwork for 20 years. Uh, and the New York Times article came out in 2017, and I thought, okay, this is it. Things are going to start to come out. And the years rolled by, and little pieces would, would hit the media every now and then, but nothing was really happening. And I'm like, okay. So then um, I found your podcast, and I'd been listening to your podcast for, I don't know, over a year probably. And then I just felt this momentum building and uh, decided, okay, now there's someone that I can go to that's uh, credible, legitimate, uh, ex-military, They've um, that I can go to and report this incident, and I could show them the evidence, and they could get that information to people that can maybe do something about it, to bring the whole story out. Mm-hmm. So I made a decision. I'm like, I'm going to try to contact Ryan Graves. I sent you an email. And to my delight and shock and surprise, you got right back to me, I think the same day or maybe the day, the next day after I sent the email. And, um, and that was the start. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, we got on the phone, we talked, and uh, it just kept rolling from there. So There's been a, a lot of folks, uh, not unlike yourself, sometimes they're you know, commercial pilots, military pilots, uh, some like yourself, uh, veterans who had an experience while they were in uh, the military that have reached out to me, just like you said. So you're not uh, the only person that has done that. Uh, I encourage others, if you're in a position similar to Jeff here, to reach out to me. Uh, you can go to safearospace.org uh, and you can submit your information. And just like Jeff said, um, I'll get back to you uh, and we'll look into your case. Um, your case was interesting to me, Jeff. And the, the cases that are most interesting to us at America's Safe Aerospace are the ones that have the potential for some type of paper trail, right. documentation, multiple witnesses, um, any type of data that we can use to further validate the story or perhaps find new information about it. Uh, and one of the interesting things about your story was the fact that, like you said, you had been sitting on these reports from uh, exactly when? Uh the event began uh, October 14th, 2003, 8.45 a.m. in the morning. 2003. And 2003. so what was, how were you involved in this incident? What was your role on the base? Um, and so where was this? So this was at Vandenberg Air Force Base. I was stationed there. I got assigned there in 2000, uh, 1999. So I had I'd been stationed in Misawa Air Base, Japan for almost seven years. That was my first duty assignment. And then I got stationed at Vandenberg. So uh, at at the base, I was a security forces member, police officer, and I was assigned to Bravo Flight. And at that time, I was either the senior patrolman or possibly a flight chief. I think I became the flight chief uh, or flight sergeant later. So I was a senior patrolman uh, working on Bravo Flight. I came in early to do changeover with the offgoing shift that was Delta Flight was working. And uh, just for people, uh, a little, I guess, context, Security forces, um, we work in flights, which is sort of like an army platoon. So you could have any, we had about 60 to 100 people on a flight. And uh, the squadron was made up of four flights, Alpha through Delta. And what is this, what are you defending to some degree? What is this base just at a high level? What is it responsible so for? So Vandenberg Air Force Base, now Space Force Base, uh, was part of U.S. Space Command. 
And at the time, they were heavily involved in a national missile defense program, which was uh, uh, President Bush's large push to um, basically design a, a weapon system that could that could knock down ballistic incoming missiles. So around that time frame, you know, the war had started in 2001, uh, and this initiative had, had been spun up, and they had built all new structures to launch these intercept missiles. Um, so the cops on base, we do general law enforcement functions. You know, we respond to domestic violence incidents, DUIs, shoplifting, everything a regular cop would do. But we also have a, a massive security role. We're in charge of all the security on the base. So we have guys and men and women stationed all over Vandenberg, which is a massive installation. I think it's uh, 100,000 square acres of land, wow. 36 miles of coastland. Uh, and it's like pristine. There's not much out there on the coast. It's just beautiful, sort of untouched, um, pristine coast uh, and scattered about that landmass are these launch facilities. And um, they have some of the big, biggest launch facilities in the world there. They could put up the big Titan rockets. Like, I think that's the one that went to the moon. So we guard all those facilities uh, in addition to all kind of um, intel facilities and, and just so basically all, stuff, yeah, yeah. just all the security on the base. So, uh, so back in 2003, I was the senior patrolman working law enforcement on Bravo flight. I came in to do shift change with Delta flight offgoing. And uh, I knew something was up when I rolled into the squadron building because there was a big crowd of people at the smoke pit right across from our armory. It's in the parking lot. And uh, there's this big crowd. And as I pulled in, they all started to point at me. And they're like, there's Jeff, there's Jeff. You know, and I could tell some, something big had happened. And that wasn't unusual. You know, a lot of times I'd come on and, and the offgoing flight would tell me some wild event that had happened. So I'm like, okay, what's up? So I, I park my truck. I go over to the, the smoke pit and everybody just starts to tell me, everybody's talking at once about this UFO event that happened that morning. And initially I'm like, you know, are you guys playing a prank? Because uh, Air Force cops are notorious for playing <laughs> pretty elaborate pranks, um, but really quickly I realized they were not joking around. They're like, no, this happened. How many people were there? There was probably, you know, a dozen or so people around around uh, waiting for me. And those would have been the, the Delta Flight patrolmen, some of uh, Bravo Flight uh, oncoming. You know, we had early posting guys that would go out to security areas. So we had a lot of people that would come in before shift, like about an hour, to do a changeover and then go out. So there was probably at least 10, 12 people out there, a mix of Bravo flight and Delta flight. So they start telling me, that I'm like, what happened? They're like, we got a call from range control, which are the people that, that run the, uh, the test ranges for the rockets. And um, they said there was this gigantic UFO flying around LF-21, which is Launch Facility 21, located on the north end of, of Vandenberg. And I'm like, what are you talking? And they're like, yeah, it's real. So I'm like, okay. So I head over to the command center, the Security Forces Command Center, to, to meet with the offgoing flight chief and, and uh, flight. And, uh, you know, as I'm walking over there, they're telling me, you know, yeah, the call came in and uh, some of the guys responded out there. They got statements. I'm like, oh, my God, is this real? You know? <laughs> and I'm getting more and more excited. So I get to the control center and I walk up and everybody's there just waiting to tell me. They're like, you're not going to believe what happened. I'm like, what happened? So the story is about 9, or I'm sorry, 8.45 in the morning, the dispatcher gets a call from range control, a technical sergeant from range control. And he says, I'm reporting uh, an event that occurred at LF-21 and LF-10, two different sites in the same location. And what he said was the contractors working on site called range control, and they said there was a gigantic floating red square over LF-21 at low altitude, and they were just standing there watching this thing. A red so, square. So red square. One thing that people have asked me after I spoke about this case uh, at the hearing was, what does that mean, a red square, right? right. It, it, was this a 
was this a cube? Would, did it not look like it had depth? And so it's described as a square. I said square in the hearing because that's how it was described to me, just as right. you described it. And I'm curious if you have any additional details that you could add. It, was it a three-dimensional object? Did it just appear to be uh, a square and it just couldn't be, you couldn't tell? From what, so here, here's the issue. I had the original statement from the contractors. There were three contractors that worked for Boeing that saw this object, and they wrote sworn written statements. I've lost those. I lost them in, in 2012. I have some other statements, but those are indirect witness statements. Mm -hmm. from but from my recollection of reading the documents, to the best of my recollection, it was a somewhat flattened square plane mm. and basically just a big square object mm. uh, the size of a football field silently floating over the launch pad wow. red in color glowing this red color so as far as i know it wasn't a cube it was like a flattened square got it um so so yeah they start telling me the story and as they're briefing me on the event, I find out that the flight chief and their, their senior patrolman, these are the people I'm talking to, they're briefing me. They responded out there. And it's about a 30-minute drive from... Earlier in the day, they were the ones that yeah, responded. So at 8.45, the call came in from range control. They said, the contractors say there's this gigantic floating red square over the launch facility. Um, and, they, and the flight chief and um, the senior patrolman... Uh, drove out to the facility and they, they met the contractors and they interviewed them. They took written statements, sworn written statements. Um, when the patrolmen went out there, they didn't see anything. So they reported uh, in the blotter entry that they didn't see anything anomalous on the way out or when they were there. Um, and then later they uh, brought in the technical sergeant from range control that called in the initial call that received the complaint from the contractor saying there's this UFO. They brought that person in and had him write a, a written statement. I have his written statement. Hmm. And I also have the blotter entry. And the blotter entry, um, it's somewhat detailed. It, um, but it doesn't go into great detail about the description of the object. All that data was in the uh, witness statements. Mm -hmm. you know. Got it. So, yeah, and that's basically what happened that morning. I came in. They're telling me this crazy story. They responded out, took the statements. Um, and I'm just like, okay, this is crazy, you know. I was, like, <laughs> completely, like, excited about, about the event because it was real. I'm like, this is not a joke. These are not... You know, these are contractors with top secret clearances, not playing a prank. You had a, a police It would be usual to see, like, you know, contractors who, my assumption is that they're not constantly on this base. They're probably there for some task or activity that is limited in nature. Th those guys were probably uh, contractors that worked on the base. Okay. So they, they, they were, probably lived in the local area and they commuted to, to Vandenberg every well, morning. Let me not make uh, assumptions. Then. Let me just ask you a question. In your experience, would the contractors that worked regularly on base, were they prone to pranking the police <laughs> on the base? No. no. Not okay. at all. No. Not at all. Because you, people have to understand the Air Force takes security incredibly serious. I mean, it's the top. We have nuclear weapons in the Air Force, and that's, that's the standard we train on because mm -hmm. we have. Uh, ICBMs, we have nukes loaded on planes. So it's st our security program starts with the top. Um, so we take security extremely uh, seriously. Um, even like, for example, when I was in uh, Japan, we had Navy aviators in Japan. Oh, this and, is a blue line story, isn't uh, it? The red line, <laughs> yeah. Red line. And, yeah, and uh, in the Air Force, if you there's procedures on how you can move on the flight line, and if you so much as step over the wrong line, the Air Force swarms on you, they put you on the ground, you've got guns pointed at you possibly, I've you're gonna be yeah, you're gonna yeah. be searched thoroughly. It's very uncomfortable and somewhat painful to go through a Air Force Security Forces search. Um, can and we demonstrate that on camera for I, the podcast? I can do it. No? I can do it. <laughs> and it yeah. 
but um so yeah it, it's serious so we don't get a lot of you know uh people pranking Playing games yeah right yeah because you're going to get an armed response with guys with with m4s and yeah that's my experience yeah. as well i just wanted to to yeah. clear that um so before we kind of get into the second half of the story um you know i get asked some questions that to me sound a little silly sometimes but I'm going to ask you anyways, you know, how do you know what they were reporting wasn't some type of test that was being conducted on your base? Well, I don't know that. I mm -hmm. mean, it could be, but the the thing is, if from being in the military and understanding how things work, the military typically does not test technology on, on um, an active base because the potential for a disaster to happen is so hot. Mm -hmm. Had there been cops on scene when that thing arrived, they could have shot at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might have unloaded, you know, and Air Force security uh, police are heavily armed. I mean, it's, we've got all the, all the cool guns we've got, and, you know, 50 cows we have, some places have stinger missiles. Wow. So, I mean, if, if another agency was trying to test out some tech or even the Air Force, for them to test it over an Air Force base would just be a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. You know. Especially one that's like everyday mission and yeah. missile defense is so highly important. You wouldn't expect to have something that could potentially get in the way of that mission. Right. And and these these test facilities were, were active. I mean, we were launching all the time. We were testing the uh these rocket systems all the time. Um this happened in broad daylight. Hmm. So <clears throat> I mean yeah, it um, it's highly unlikely that it was anything prosaic or something of ours. I mean, that would be that would be more difficult for me to believe than than a UFO. Actually, <laughs> you know, to be honest, that, that yeah. somebody was like, "Hey, let's see what happens if we put this hundred yard object over the base." It's like nothing good will happen. <laughs> you know, nothing good is going to happen there. Either yeah. we're going to shoot at it, or a helicopter is going to crash into it, or you know god only knows so um did so so you took some statements and these are the police blotters that you uh then presented to me later in right uh much later down the road yeah you, you know you guys you did your paperwork and you essentially went back back to work yeah i came on duty and you know i kept you know because the place was on like on fire with excitement like nobody could believe what was going mm -hmm. on and everybody was talking about it. i was talking to everybody trying to figure out you know is this did this really happen it's like yeah it really happened and um and some people went straight into um kind of denial like i, I remember talking to the flight chief and i actually worked for him later and um the other thing i'd like to say is these the people that responded out there and the people that were on duty were some of the sharpest guys we had at Vandenberg. Um, the flight chief there, like I said, I worked for him later. He was a top performing guy. He was in on all the big projects at the wing level, so he'd be invited to give briefings to the wing commander and things. He was one of the sharpest guys we had. Um, and when I kept asking him, I'm like, what do you think? What, what? You know, he, he would just shrug his shoulder, and he's like, I don't know, man, mm -hmm. I don't know. And he, he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to discuss it, you know. Other people wanted to talk about it and try to figure it out. So, would you consider talking to, speaking to your, you said flight leader, wing leader? Um, was was that? Did you consider that you briefing it up in a sense? You know, you wrote your police blotters. It was recorded in the log, so mm -hmm. to speak. But was there any, any sub, you know, either oral or written report that you made that you know you thought in your mind kind of pushed the responsibility onto? up the chain to some degree for further yeah, evaluation? So, so what happens in the Air Force when we have an incident, like anything that happens on shift goes in the blotter, just mm -hmm. about everything, even minor things like, uh, you know, somebody almost hit a deer and they called it in. We'll put, we'll put that in the blotter. Yep. Somebody called in, I almost hit a deer. We're like, fine. So it's got all the time, date, location, all the information. So the blotter is a chronological log of everything that happens. It's a legal document, right? It's we had yeah. similar ones in the Navy. Yeah. yeah. So when it's filled out, I mean, it's a it's a record of like crimes and incidents and everything. Uh, it's an official use document mm -hmm. uh, when it's completely filled out and signed, and then it it should be uh, it should be logged. 
But what happens when we have an incident, we have a checklist. So if it's a DUI, we whip out the checklist. Who do we need to notify? And there's a whole list of notifications. And typically, any kind of crime or serious event where somebody got arrested, that goes all the way up to the wing commander. Every commander in the chain that needs to know will find out. It also goes to the, the base command post, and they're the central, uh, basically, command center for the base. And then they'll make a decision whether or not to up-channel to higher headquarters. So when this event happened, there's no checklist for a UFO, right? So I learned like, that okay. as well, yes. So what happens in that case is the, the on-duty flight chief will ma make a determination, who do I need to notify? Or he'll call possibly his, his commander and say, Here's what we got. Where do we go with it? So in this particular case, the notifications, everyone that was notified is listed on the blotter, which is good. So now we know everybody that, that received the phone call about that incident. It went to the command post. It went to uh, OSI. It went to my commander. And plus everybody in the security police chain of command. So it went to the op superintendent. It went to, the, I think, the operations officer. It went up to our commander. They were all notified and briefed on the incident, command post, and then uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but but there were multiple other notifications made. Interesting. Right? So this was definitely up-channeled, at least to the wing, and I can't imagine that the command post just sat on it and didn't up-channel that to higher headquarters. That's an assumption, mm -hmm. but but um, I would say that they probably up-channeled that to, to higher headquarters. So, so that's how the no no notifications uh, go. So everybody that needed to know in the unit was aware of the situation that happened in the morning. And then, um, and then yeah, we were all just kind of sitting with it, like, okay, what now? Like, and I know, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but just on that thread with all those notifications go out, did you ever hear anything back from any of them? No. No, because... Well, first of all, I wasn't on duty when it happened. Mm -hmm. So there would be no need for anybody uh, in the chain of command to reach back out. Are to you me. aware of anyone, like, you know, was there any follow-up, you know, about the investigation from anyone that was involved that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. OSI might have done, uh, they might have interviewed the witnesses, uh, but I wouldn't have been involved in that. I wouldn't even have yeah. known about that. And we didn't do, the, the police didn't do any further investigation. Now, they might have. We have security forces investigators um, that were notified. They were, they're on the blotter entry. They might have done a follow-up. Uh, I wouldn't know about that. So that would have been after, this, after uh, the incident, our investigators would have brought them in and, and done a more intensive uh, interview about it. That might have happened, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, now let's kind of jump back back to the same day here um what happened later that day so, so later the day in the day things get like very interesting they get it turns into like a movie basically uh so i come on shift there's all this excitement i can't believe i'm hearing like this is real like i'm like oh my god like we've got a real ufo encounter broad daylight with contractors with top secret clearances so I come on shift, everybody's talking about it, and I'm like, I'm going out looking for these things. I wanted to see one so bad. So I went to the armory, I got night vision, I got some binocs, and uh, you know everybody was excited. So I was out, uh, I think we were working the night shift. So uh, as day transitioned into night, I'm cruising all over this gigantic installation. I was mostly out on the coast, and I'm looking. You know, I'm looking in the sky, and I'm going around talking to, to everybody. I'm stopping at different security posts. Like, what do you guys think about the UFO? You know, we're all talking. Were they all aware of it? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm sure we briefed it at guard mount. Yeah. So part of my job uh, in that role, every, um, every shift for a cop begins with a thing called guard mount. It's a formal formation. Everybody falls in. You've got all your gear. And then the flight chief and the flight sergeant will give you a briefing on here's what we got going on. Here's different security measures. Here's some incidents that happened. We've got some be on the lookouts, you know. Um, so whatever, you get a full briefing. And uh, 
I don't remember exactly, but I, I'm sure that we this was briefed at guard mount because you're telling them, okay, on the last shift, here's here's the important things yeah. that happen. And, and everyone's like, already hopped and, up on yeah, that. Yeah, and, and everybody needs to know because they're going to go out. The guys on my flight are now going to go out and relieve Delta flight, and they're going to be on north base where this happened. They're going to be on south base. So we, I'm sure we got a briefing. I don't remember exactly, but. I mean, you know, I I hope you did, right? Because that's part of it. If it was just kind of brushed off as a quote-unquote UFO event, yeah. and then it was like, oh, okay, well, that will never happen again. And now, you know, we have some adversary that's spying on our missile defense systems. Right. You know, so, you know, the hope would be that, yes, it was briefed, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of part of the stigma that was probably more apparent back when this first happened than it was now. It's gone away a little bit. For sure, degree. yeah. But I remember at the time there wasn't anybody trying to detract from it or there were people that are just like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, Jeff. Like, leave me alone. Yeah. There was that crowd. And then there were the other people that wanted to do nothing but talk about it. Hmm. So the, the atmosphere, at least on Bravo flight, was just like humming with energy. So, yeah, we go out on shift and I'm out there talking to everybody. Um you know, we're having these discussions about what are they, what do you think it was doing, you know, and um, and then it gets dark. And I remember being out, um, I was on the coast and I had the NVGs out and I was looking at the sky and at some point I'm like, what am I doing out here, man? I'm like, what if this thing shows up <laughs> and I'm alone, Isolated I'm himself. 30, 40 minutes from main base, I've got no backup. And I started getting really nervous. I'm like, okay, man, it's time to go back <laughs> to main base. So I jumped back in my patrol car, headed back, and uh, I got back to the control center. <clears throat> and I'm on the control center with our dispatcher and uh, a few other people. And then we get this radio transmission from our security guys out at Slick 4. Now, Slick 4 is Space Launch Facility 4. It's on the south end of the base. And... They, opposite where the opposite. first thing, yeah. So, yeah, it's probably a, a, it could be almost an hour drive from, from one post to mm. the other. And uh, so they, they call in over the radio to the con command center. And I don't remember exactly what the transmission was, but it started out something like, be advised, we've got some strange lights out over the ocean off a of slick four. And, you know, dispatchers are like, Roger that, you know, keep, keep a visual on it. And very quickly, uh, within a few minutes, the, the transmission started to get more and more uh, excited and, and um, I guess, scared. They're agitated. Agitated. They're, they're saying, hey, these things are, this, this light is moving erratically. It's getting closer. It's getting larger. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, oh. And I'm getting ready to jump in my car and go. Were you well, thinking it was just an airplane up to that point? No. Yeah. <laughs> that point, because they know. Like, these guys are, they're, they are trained observers. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. And, and they, they're posted out there, you know, 24-7. They know what aircraft look like. They, they know what fishing boats look like. And... I didn't feel like they were just jumping the gun because there had been a UFO. Mm -hmm. It sounded like when the radio transmissions were coming over, it's like something is going on. Yeah, they're watching something. They're watching something. And uh, so I'm getting ready to, to to jump in the car, and then all hell breaks loose. And they start screaming over the radio. It's coming right at us. It's coming right for us. Now it's right here. And it was hard to hear because they were screaming, and they were scared. Wow. And I'm like, holy, okay. So I, I jumped in my car and, uh, you know, this all playing out on the radio and the dispatchers are communicating with them, trying to get more information and it's just chaos, you know. And the dispatchers are basically advising everybody to go on alert and trying to get information. And, uh, and then things calmed down a bit. They said the, the object flew off. So <laughs> finally I get out there to slick four. And at that particular site, there's about six people posted. We've got an entry control point. We've got uh, in interior security, exterior security. So we've got anywhere from five to six or more people posted there. So when I show up, 
It's just mayhem. Everybody's excited. They're scared. Everyone's freaked out. I talked to everybody. I'm pretty sure my flight chief came out with me. I can't remember. I'm still waiting for him to call me back and, and have a chat about exactly what happened. Because it's been 20 years. It's like, um, And I'm talking to everybody. And they're, basically what they describe uh, is this object came in, was moving strangely, erratically. It got bigger and brighter as it came in. And then it came at a high rate of speed and flew right up to the entry control point and stopped. And they all stared at it. And then it just shot off. And this object was large, too. Wow. Yeah. It was, so it shot, did it shoot over land? Did it shoot yeah, it, over water? Yeah, it came in from the west. So the, the west coast of the base is the Pacific Ocean. It came in from the west and then shot off. I think it was like kind of northeast. Wow. Did they describe the color the at all? Or could they estimate a size even? So according to, and I have one direct eyewitness that, I, that I'm good friends with that uh, I've talked to about it. He described it as the same square. He did. He did. Now, initially, I remembered it being a huge orb-like object. So what I'm trying to figure out now, because there were multiple people, is my recollection is flawed, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do now is get all the people that were there to independently tell me what did they see. Because I'm conflating, I think what's happening is I'm conflating, there were so many events that happened in a short period of time that they all, over 20 years, they got jumbled in my head. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? So, yeah, the, the one eyewitness uh, came, came forward recently and told me it was the square. Hmm. And I'm like, wow, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, oh gosh, before we get into kind of how this has been investigated to some degree, um, was that uh, another case that was written up in the blogger? As, as far as I remembered, um, I can't imagine we did not put that in the blogger. Mm -hmm. We put in, in uh, one of the other witnesses that I've introduced you to, he was our dispatcher. And it was actually a, a running joke with him. Everything goes in the blotter with him. Mm -hmm. And he would put things in there. I'm like, take that out. He's like, everything goes in the blotter. And I'm like, take it out. He's like, everything goes in the blotter. That's how you train me. And I'm like, take that out. He's like, no. So that was the, the kind of joke. Yeah. So um, he he's pretty certain that he put it in the mm -hmm. blotter. So there should be a record of it, uh, along with everybody that, that was out there and everyone that saw it. And we, I am, again, it's been 20 years, but I can't imagine that I did not have everyone write statements. You know, mm -hmm. that was uh, that was what I did, you know. I was a senior patrolman. If there was an incident, I did the preliminary investigation. I gathered all the data. I'd wrote, have everybody write everything down, and they would swear and, and sign. So, gosh. So the thing darted off. Was there any other sightings that night? or? That's what I'm trying to figure out now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> initially, I, I had, when I briefed you initially on it, I gave you two names of people that I was certain were the ones that called it in over the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to get in contact with them, and I was wrong about that. They remember the incident, but they're like, I, I wasn't the one that called it in. Mm -hmm. They think that they were at another location on South Base, and they remember hearing it, mm -hmm. but they're like, that wasn't me. And I thought they were the ones that got buzzed by the UFO. And then it took me a while, lots of phone calls, and getting a hold of these people, because it, you know, I haven't talked to these people for 20 years, and then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, Let's get in contact. And then yeah. they're calling me and they're, hey, what's up? And I'm like, let's talk about the UFO. You know, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did they all remember what it was right away? Some people don't, mm -hmm. uh, which initially I, I thought it was a little strange. I'm like, you don't remember this? But but then when I th I thought about it, it's like, there's a lot of things I don't remember that happened that were pretty spectacular, not UFO related, just military things that happened or wild events that happened. And uh, this happened last 4th of July. I got together with a bunch of my, my buddies from Japan, and they were telling me this story that I completely forgot about. Yeah. You know, this wild, it's like, how could I forget that? Mm -hmm. But then when they reminded me, it all comes back, right? So some people have vague memories of it. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are like, I don't, uh, 
one of my previous flight chiefs, and he's sort of a mentor of mine, the guy I was really close with, he was my boss for on Bravo flight for a lot of years, somebody we all looked up to. I thought for sure he was the flight chief on duty. And when I finally got a hold of him, he's like, nah, man, I wasn't there that night. And I'm like, I could have swore you were with me. And he's like, that wasn't me. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do now is track down all the people because my recollection of who was there and all the, the particulars and the details are flawed, mm-hmm. right? Because I wasn't there when these things happen. It's all secondhand. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to track down everybody that was actually there and actually saw the thing and get their story. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm making pretty good progress on that now. Well, when you came to me, like you said, we started, you know, exploring your story and started doing a little research on uh, who else was there. Um, why don't you talk about some of the the police blotters that you had and how you came across those after uh, a period of time? Uh, if you recall, I thought you, you know, you told me how you had thought you had lost some of those documents. Oh, yeah. So, <clears throat> so what happened? I used to have basically my own little X-file. Mm-hmm. So any anything weird had happened on duty, I would go in at the end of the shift and print a page of the blotter and I threw it in the file. And so when I had gone in that morning, I'd make copies of all the statements, all the blotters, all the documentation, and I had it in my file. And then when I separated, I carried around this box of my X-Files. And it wasn't, it was mostly, you know, just important law enforcement type incidents that had happened. It was mostly things like that. But then I had a few of these very weird things. So what happened was I was running, um, I had my own business. I had a store in uh, New Jersey. And some of the young kids were talking about it. And I, and I told them, I said, I, I had a UFO encounter. So I told them the story. And some, some guys believed it and others didn't. And I told them, I said, I'll bring, in, I'll bring in the documents to show you. So the next day at work, I brought in the box and all these kids came into the shop and I pulled it out. I said, here, read. Here's what happened. Read, mm. read. And they read, and they're like, oh, my God, this is real. I'm like, it's real. I'm not, I'm not mm. making this up. This happened. Here's the documents. And then I took that box down in the basement of, of the store, and I had it up on a um, – I had this long shelf. It was about five feet off the ground, and I had all my product and, and things up there because we had flooding issues in the basement. And uh, we had this bad rainstorm, and the front of the street in front of the store was flooded. And I went down in the basement to check, and we had this big, like, 8-inch sewer pipe running the length of the store, and it was spraying water out of a joint. Mm. So I called my landlord. He had these plumbers come out. It's like 8 o'clock at night. Go down in the basement, and they decide to pull the plug I twist a cap and I try to stop them. I'm like, is that a good idea? And they're like, no, we're good. And I'm like, okay. And they pulled it and it was a geyser of sewer water mm. and it shot straight up into the ceiling and it flooded four and a half feet of sewer water in the basement. Yikes. It went up a, a geyser and just rained down. It was unbelievable. And they couldn't get, they couldn't get that thing back on. The pressure mm-hmm. was enormous. And then the fire department came and the cops came and that box was sitting right there and i remember i was standing on the stairs this was in the basement i was on the stairs right above the flood water and these guys are in there and trying to clean it up and this was after they were you know they had got the the leak under control and i remember them just throwing everything in trash bags and i remembered maybe it was a couple days after the landlord brought guys in to clean it up and i just remembered him taking my box and throwing it away and i just all your files everything covered in sewage everything it was gone and i was just like i can't believe this right and then sometime after that i was going through all my mill i had other records at home i think it was va paper and i'm going through it looking for something for the va i'm like oh that looks like a says oh and i pull it out and i've got somehow mixed up was i had the blotter from the event I had in the one witness statement. I'm like, thank God, (laughs) because I thought it was all gone. Um, So I had that, and um, and that's what I I told you. How many years later, after the the that flood was that flood was in 2011 or 2012, 
um, I don't remember. It wasn't long after that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was probably the same year. Yeah. And then I found it. I'm like, okay, I've got something. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Thank God, you know. And that's all I have left from this huge, you know, file I had. But that was the thing. I'm like, that's enough. The blotter, to me, is the most important thing. Um, because it shows, it, it lists a narrative of what happened, who responded, who called it in, and every single person that was notified in the chain of command. And I'm like, this is important. Right. And uh, and over the years, I didn't know what to do with that. Like, I knew I had all this paperwork, and I've always been interested. And then I would see all these other people come out and say, I had, you know, a, a UFO showed up at a nuke base and turned them off, turned the nukes off. And those stories have been out forever. And then you see people go through the stigma, you know, and they're being derided they're being made fun of they're saying these people are just trying to sell a book and for 20 years i'm like no they're not <laughs> no they're not like i don't know if they're making it up but the, whatever the phenomenon it's real story. and it happened right um and i had that paperwork and I'm, i didn't know what to do with it and over the years i'm like oh maybe i could get it to a journalist maybe i could get it to somebody but uh i just hung on to it and you know, this, like I said, this momentum built up around summer before the hearing. I just felt this pressure. I'm like, it's time to bring it out, you know. Right. And then, then I, you know, I'm like, okay, there's a credible person that I can go to with this now. And that was you. And it was a, a shot in the dark. I'm like, I don't know if this guy gets a million emails a day. I don't know if he'll ever see it, you know. Um and I think I had written to a couple um, people in the UFO community prior. I don't remember if I actually sent the emails or not, but it, I told them, like, hey, this is who I am. I've got some evidence. I'd like to share it. I'd like to get the story out. Um, and they never got back to me or I never sent the email. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I sent it to you, it was like, let's talk. I'm like, okay. Well, now, you know, the government is looking into these a little bit more. Right. Um, we helped you a little bit. We, you know, at America's Safe Aerospace, we, like you said, met with some of these, uh, some of your colleagues and, and other witnesses to this. But I also helped introduce you to um, uh, investigators, you could say, at the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Uh, I know a lot of uh, my listeners will be familiar with Aero. Um, they have been, I think, taken a little bit of a wrap in the in the media or in the, uh, at least in the Twitter sphere, if you will. Um, but regardless of what the general consensus is, there are people there that are uh, trying to figure this out and work through some of these problems. Um, I'd like to hear if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit uh, of your experience when you um, were introduced to Arrow. Um, I've heard from other folks that they didn't have a good experience. What What was your experience like? My experience was really positive. So... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, in, in every regard, it, it was positive. Um, in fact, you know, I, the investigator that contacted me spent a tremendous amount of time talking to me uh, over an hour for sure. And it ends up small world. Him and I know some of the same people. And have, we, we've been in the same... Um, professionally? Professionally, mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, uh, so that was interesting. We started talking. It's like, oh, you know him? I know him too. So, and we had kind of worked... Um, not on cases together, but in the same, I guess, sphere of law enforcement. So we knew some of the same people and we got along really well. And um, so overall, it was a great experience. And you feel like they listened to your story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and they were, I felt that they were gen genuinely interested in the case and genuinely interested in. Um, looking into it was it a a data dump of sorts where you know you went in or you spoke with them and they said hey here's my store and they said thank you or was it kind of an exploration of how you know more information could be gathered um how would you kind of describe it yeah it was um the 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 process was basically he allowed me to to be involved a bit so he told me that he'll be in contact with me when he finds information 
I told him that I'll provide additional information. So it was, yeah. It's an active process. It's an active process. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's the thing that was difficult to kind of wrap my head around with the conversation with Arrow is they are very limited in what they can do with a historical case, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe as much as they would like to go back to 2003 and look at the archives and look at the records and investigate and bring this out. Not that it's their job to bring this out. And I think people need to understand that too. Like if, if you're going to arrow, uh, hoping that they're going to investigate your case and then, and then display it to the public, that's unlikely to happen. That's not what their mandate is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that might be some of the frustration that people have. They're like, Hey, I called arrow a year ago and there's nothing. Mm -hmm. They're, They're not talking about it. And I don't think that's what Arrow's going to do. That's not their mandate. It's not really their mission. Um, theirs is to collect data. So, Did you have to sign any type of NDA? No. The, I think there's a lot of confusion with the NDA because people with classified information or they've signed an NDA, they're allowed, according to the law, they can go to Arrow and disclose. They can break that NDA or share that classified information with Arrow, mm-hmm. but with Arrow only. And I think that's where some more of the frustration comes in because people are thinking that by by providing Arrow the information, it will declassify hmm. th- the uh, event. That will not happen. Yeah. Mine is different because it's unclassified. Mm-hmm. The documents I have are unclassified. The event was public knowledge. It was in the blotter, which is a publicly available document. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have to worry about any of that. And then I asked him, you know, am I, after we're done, am I going to be able to share a story? And they're like, absolutely. It's your story. You could tell it to whoever you want. So overall, a very positive experience. But getting back to the limit on what they can do, I, I received information that a lot of the records are gone. The blotters are gone. Police reports are gone. Um, what just does gone mean? Gone means deleted, lost, destroyed. So there was, so the police blotters and a lot of the data associated, was this just at Vandenberg? Was this just at your, your wing or your... From what I understand, uh, and it's a bit of a complex story, but starting in 2007 time frame, the DOD realized that there was a data problem because what happened was uh, there was there was a break in, in, in the system. What happened was uh, a military member in Texas that was not, he was under multiple investigations by multiple different agencies. The data should have been put into uh, NCIC, which is the National Crime information system where all the law enforcement data goes into. So if you can't have a firearm, it goes into that database. Mm. If, um, if you're a sex offender, it goes into that database. If you have a warrant, it's in that database. They had an incident where a military member in lots of trouble was not allowed to have a gun. His information was not loaded up into NCIC. He was able to purchase firearm he went into a, I think it was a church in Texas and killed a bunch of people. It wasn't that long ago, was it? Was, it? This yeah, was not long that. ago. Uh, and then when the, the the investigation that came out of that event, they started looking and they're like, there's huge, massive amounts of law enforcement data missing in the DOD. And apparently there was an inspector general uh, investigation. Why, why that case uh, wasn't uploaded. And what they found out was data's gone. It's been lost, destroyed, deleted. Hmm. And from what I understand, this is DOD wide and the historical records are gone. I'm hoping that's not true. And I'm hoping, uh, that can be verified, but it could be, and that, that's the thing, the paperwork I have is now that much more important because there might not be a record of it. Mm. That's interesting. We'll have to, I'm sure there'll be some internet sleuthing on the, 
to hear exactly yeah. more about this whole deletion thing, but that's yeah. unfortunate. So that was one avenue of investigation that you guys went down right. and this that seemed to close the door. Uh, were there any others? I mean, basically what they can do is they can look at historical data mm-hmm. in, in cases like mine. Yeah. Um, and, and they can go and look for additional data. Was there radar data? Was there, there we had all kinds of sensors on that base. Um, so they can, they can do a deep dive. They can also look into special access programs and, you know, and, Obviously, it's highly unlikely that that was a special access program, but they check, you know, yeah. were we doing anything that can account for these encounters? Uh, so they do a deep dive and they look where they can look. But if they're looking at a historical case, there's nowhere to look now, yeah. allegedly. Yeah. You know, and that that's a big problem. So it sounds like you, it's essentially a stalemate right now until there's new information for your particular case. Uh, the historical data is gone um, unless someone's able to find some particular data set related to it that right. as of now we're not aware of, then it's probably a, a unresolved and will continue to be unresolved case within the Arrow right. books. Would that be fair to say? Yeah? That'd be fair to say, mm-hmm. yeah. But the, the, good, the good that comes out of it <clears throat> And it's really good because I have some documentation to prove we're just we're not just making up some wild tale, right? So I think the more people that were involved, because a lot of people know about this event at Vandenberg. Just on Bravo flight alone, we had between forty and sixty people on duty that day. Delta flight probably the same. Then you look at all the notifications that were made. So I gave a quick tally to you, like there's at least 80 people that know this happened, Mm -hmm. you know, and then plus the contractors and the other cops that that actually saw it with their own eyes. Um, So my whole thing is I can show that this event occurred because I I have documents and then I can bring together all the people that experienced it and that could help drop the stigma so... Because if this happened at Vandenberg, it happened elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I've had, uh, over my career, I've had multiple times where good friends of mine, it's usually like when we, like for example, when I when the war started and I deployed, I was in uh, United Arab Emirates and just happened to be- You have to, to narrow it down a little bit more. What's that? Which war? Oh, yeah, right. That's <laughs> true. 2001. Got it. Thank yeah, you. that that one. Wasn't even a joke, but... It no, was. I know. But, yeah, I know. Sadly. It's like, which one? It is sad. But, uh, yeah, I just happened to be uh, deployed with a, a good friend of mine from Japan that I hadn't seen in years, one of my best friends. And uh, we were there for a couple months, and then one night, he's like, hey, man, let's, I got to talk to you about something. And we went way out in the middle of the desert, and he turned his radio off. He said, turn your radio off. I turned my radio off. He said, bro, I got to tell you something. And he started telling me these crazy stories about UFOs. And this was out near, like, Holloman Air Force Base. Hmm. And he was like, he's not, he's not into UFOs. He doesn't care. He's not into sci-fi. He doesn't read it, doesn't watch movies. And, but he observe just over and over all these strange things flying around at night while he was on duty and he was asking me what is it what, what do you think it is you know? so i had a lot of things like that happened over over the years where people approach me i have friends that work intel and you know we we're camping and they're like let's go for a walk and they would tell me i saw this crazy thing and um so those piled up over the years and then, uh, and then Vandenberg happened, mm. you know, and I'm like, oh my God, it's real. Mm. You know, you know, it's real because the people telling you about it, you're like, they're not going to make this up and they're, they're not, they're not, you know, and then it happens to you and everybody around you. And you're like, okay, we're in a movie right now. So I know a lot of people, you know, the conversation is maybe a little bit more sophisticated than it was in 2004, at least broadly right now we're, you know, we use the term UAP and we're you know, maybe a little bit more agnostic about, you know, the source or the origin of these objects, at least, you know, mm-hmm. as we did try to discuss it in a scientific manner, you know, but w- w- 
what were your thoughts then? What are your thoughts now? Have they changed? What do you think these are? What do they, what are they? That's a that's a deep deep question. <clears throat> what has changed is well, it it, it goes from. It's ontological shock, right? Everything changes. It did for me um, because we haven't talked about it yet, but there were more encounters at Vandenberg and one of them I was involved in. And, um, you know, it it's one thing when it's happening around you and you know it's real, right? And, and you know the people around you are not lying and uh, it's not some kind of joke and there are documents and statements and you're like okay this is real and that's a type of ontological shock right there and it's exciting and you know it's fun you're like oh my god you know ufos are real like all these stories might be real that we've been hearing about roswell and everything in between so it becomes it, it changes your entire like perspective it did for me anyway but then when you see one well then it really 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 changes your perspective right and it and that's the thing it's like what do you do with it after it happens right um because you're just kind of left in shock and awe and confusion and there's a little bit of fear and a lot of excitement and fortunately for me all these events happened uh with other people it wasn't like i was just out camping alone so that was a lot of, um, it was very comforting, you know, because you're, you're like, you're looking at your friend, like, are you seeing this? And they're like, yeah. So that's very, I don't know how I would have managed or, or handled it if I'd have been alone, you know, because I don't know if I would have even talked about it, you know, because people are, you know, going to think you're, there's going to be people that think you're crazy or making up or trying to sell a book mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. Uh, so it was good for me to have people that I knew and trusted around me that were my good friends and and I had served with. So that was comforting. But like I said, everything changed for me in 2017 because I'm like, oh, now it's coming out with the U uh, the New York Times story. Mm -hmm. And and then I was kind of just waiting, like, when is it? When's the, the other shoe going to drop? And then it it didn't. So for me, um, the big shift now are people like you and some of the other people that are that have come out in the open and be like, these events are real, they're happening, they're happening all the time, um, they're not rare, there's credible people that have seen them, there is a preponderance of evidence that they are real, whether people want to accept the evidence or not, like the, the entire event um, you know, on the West Coast with the entire fleet. It's like you can write that off and say it was birds and swamp gas or whatever, these pilots, and, you know, the, the, the Navy has no idea what they're looking at or what they're chasing. You can you can either take that as your truth or be like, no, this is real. What do we do about it? And I'm happy now that people like Avi Loeb and Dr. Gary Nolan have come out publicly and, and they're invested in, exploring and gathering data and trying to figure out like what's going on because i'm sure the government is not going they're they're not going to tell us what's going on unless they have to mm -hmm. um and i I'm, i don't think there's anything necessary like nefarious about that it's just the way that the government works it's always like going to be a national security yeah, concern you know they're not going to talk about um especially if it, they don't know what it is they're not going to talk about that if you know, if they had a, like a, a if they ran into a, a Russian, if they knew there was a Russian or Chinese or, or some other uh, technology, you know, flying around our, our carrier groups, they would not publicly acknowledge that either. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to tell everybody, hey, the, the Russians are flying circles around our F-18s and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So... Mm -hmm. It's um, a big admission for a DOD to, to do something like that. And I don't think people quite understood the significance of it in the 20, you know, 18, 19, 2020 timeframe when the DOD did come out for the first time and said, we uh, we don't know what these are. That was quite the big admission that they're not in the uh, the habit of making those admissions. Yeah. 
Um, one thing that was, you know, as we finish up here, one of the interesting things that happened as part of this this engagement was um, before the the hearings in this last July, uh, the UAP hearings that we had. Uh, I was in D.C. and I spoke to a number of the representatives uh, on both sides of the aisle uh, regarding the upcoming hearing, kind of give them a little, you know, communication about why I thought this topic was important and how I was going to approach the conversation and the questions. Um, and one of the things that came up was some of the cases that we've been working uh, at Americans for Safe Aerospace, um, including your case. Um, it was not my intent to, to speak to the Vandenberg case at the hearing, but um, I was as surprised uh, as, as anyone else, I think, when um, Congresswoman Luna asked me to detail that case a bit. Were you expecting that to come up at all in the not hearing? Not at all. Like I told you offline, I fell out of my chair. <laughs> you know, th that hearing was a huge deal for me. It was like, it was like one of the biggest things ever. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there watching it unfold and and then she asked that question and i literally <laughs> fell out of my chair it's like oh my god because i wasn't ready um like i've i've walked into this ca cautiously i didn't want to i wanted to kind of um do this in a controlled manner and uh, i didn't want to sensationalize it i want to get some more information get more witnesses behind me maybe get some more documentation uh, maybe get those statements that I lost. If they were still record, I could get copies of them and then bring it out. And then when it came out, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I was elated and like terrified at the same time. Uh, but in the end, I was I was happy that it did come out but, because then it uh, more people asked about it, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, some other people. And then I just, I was like, oh, oh, it's out now. I was, I was, I couldn't believe she asked. I was actually. You handled it great. I, I was a little nervous. I was going to mess up some of the details. Yeah, yeah you. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, but. you handled it great. It, it was great. So yeah, it was a complete shock. My heart was pounding, and I was smiling, and <laughs> <clears throat> you know. And then a after hearing, I'm like, all right, well, here we go. You know, it's time to get to work. It's yeah. out. It's yeah. out. Everybody knows about it now. And, and then, <laughs> yeah, oops, sorry. Oops. Yeah, and then the LA Times ran a story and. Uh, Santa Barbara Times or mm. a bunch, you know, I, I kept popping up on online. I'm like, well, now it's out. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows something happened in 2003 at Vandenberg. And I wonder how many more similar stories there are out there, you know, that maybe they're not at Vandenberg or maybe they are just with different people in different yeah. times. But Well, I saw the article, I don't know if you saw it, in the Liberation Times. Did you see, uh, what's his name, Christopher, Christopher Sharp, journalist? He posted a very detailed uh, event that happened at Vandenberg in 2012 with a security forces mm -hmm. member. And I, I that saw one. that. I'm like, here's one I didn't know about. Yeah. And I read it. And that one was different. It was enormous uh, glowing ball of plasma. It said it was so big it looked like the moon. Mm. And they observed it for, I think, quite a long period of time. More than 30 minutes. The same area, I think. It was North Base. Um, and they called it in. The flight chief responded. They all looked at this thing. And uh, But in that case, according to the, the article, the flight chief said, we're not putting this in a blotter. We're not going to do a 3545, which is an incident report. We're not going to up-channel it. I think they, if I remember right, they did contact the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard came back and said, it's fishing boats. Hmm. And, the, and, the, and the cop is like, it's up in the sky <laughs> and it, and he actually had um, night vision. Okay, so yeah, he, he looked at it through night vision, and he s described it was a uh, with the night vision you could see a like a center sphere with smaller ones hmm. whipping around it. Interesting. So that's another case from Vandenberg that's already in the media, and I have a feeling these things are all over. And if if we could kind of reduce the stigma and and give people permission to to come out and talk about it, a lot will come out. Mm. Because like I said, I had friends over the years who would come to me and be like, dude, there's weird stuff going going on. Well, yeah. that's pretty much one of the main missions of what we're trying to do here yeah. at Merge by having these conversations to encourage other people to reach out uh, to share these conversations so that we can hear more and get more data about them.
Um, real quick, I want to show this patch here. Uh, Jeff gave me this. Can you give me the background from this? So that is our unit patch from Vandenberg, the 30th Security Forces Squadron, West Coast Warriors. And me and all the guys that you've talked to wanted you to have that patch because we appreciate so much all your help bringing this out and and believing us and listening to us. And, um, you know, my friends want the same thing that I, I do. They want the stigma reduced. They want the public to know that their military is engaging on some level with things that we don't know. Um, the, the phenomenon is absolutely real. And um, we want to encourage more people from Vandenberg and from all over, from all walks of life to come come out. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, there's more people like me that have got some evidence. They've got some reports or documents or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, we're me and me and my my crew, we're in the fight now. One step yeah. at a time. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming out yeah. here to New Hampshire to have this conversation. And I'm hoping more people will come forward now. Thank you. It's been an honor and it's been a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you.